but he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. One of the characteristics of the prophet is that they do not enjoy popularity at home. People love them in principle and from afar. But when they start telling home truths, nobody can find a good word to be said about them. Nowhere was this more true than in Galilee with Jesus in his own family. You'll notice by this that Jesus had brothers and sisters, which would indicate that Mary and Joseph had a completely normal marriage and that there were other children and the idea that Mary is perpetually virgin is not actually substantiated by what the Bible says. He had brothers, we know their names, he had sisters, but they weren't believers in him in the first place. They rejected him because prophets aren't acceptable in their hometown, in their home place, in their household, in their family. But this is true of John the Baptist, and so introduces to us the passage that Leah has just read to us from chapter 14. Jesus, because of the unbelief of the hometown and his own household, didn't do any miracles. John, his relationship was with Herod. For we read in 14.1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. Now it's back in chapter 10 that Jesus' miraculous ministry has really been expanded greatly. For back in chapter 10, he calls his disciples and sends them out to do his ministry all across the country so that everybody heard of Jesus and his exorcisms and his healings. Even John in prison heard about it and was not too sure that this was what was to be expected of the Christ. But Jesus reminded him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is anyone who is not offended in me. Referring back to the prophecy of Isaiah, what did you expect, John? The Old Testament says this is what's happening. Look what's happening. Others were also not impressed by the miracles of the disciples that came in the name of Jesus. The cities of Galilee, we're told in Matthew 11, wouldn't repent. Jesus says, Nineveh repented, but you wouldn't repent. The Pharisees found fault with him and accused him of doing it by the power of the devil. Now in his own hometown, people and his own household won't believe in him. Herod's opinion was that Jesus' miracles were the result of John the Baptist. Come back from the dead to spook him. Come back to the dead to haunt him. This was so typical of Herod. Self-absorbed and narcissistic. Whatever's happening out there, it's all happening against me. Narcissists are just like that. For John had challenged Herod the Tetrarch and Herodias about their behaviour. And so Herod had John put into prison till he eventually executed him. Now Herod and Herodias's behaviour was appallingly scandalous. Now let's take a moment to put it all back into history. For there are seven King Herods in the Bible, in the New Testament. And it really is confusing as to which Herod you're talking about when you talk about King Herod. Uh, they come in several generations, actually. So who is the one and what is the problem? 
Well, here's a kind of map of some of the family of Herod, just some. Herod the Great had five wives, made more complicated by the fact that two of them had the same name, uh, Mary Ann one, Mary Ann two. How he dealt with his domestic duties, goodness only knows, but he had multiple children as a result, some of whom he named by the same name. So a couple of them are both named Philip, a very fine name. If anyone's pregnant and interested in good names, can I suggest Philip is a first-class name that you might like to consider? Certainly Herod did. Now Herod the Great was the famous one who built the temple and who built Caesarea, Uh, but he was totally paranoid, especially in his old age. In fact, he's the one who killed the baby boys in Bethlehem when the wise men came. And it's it's true of his character. He killed his own sons. On his deathbed, he was so worried about their plotting against him that he actually had his own sons, some of his own sons killed, uh, such as Aristobulus. Now, in marrying five times and producing these many sons, when he died, his kingdom was split up between them. Uh, between four of them in particular, that's why it's called a tetrarchy, and we have the name here is the tetrarch, tetrarch means four, and so there were four rulers that divided up the kingdom of Herod in that time. Uh, Some of them didn't last long, Archelaus, he failed, and he was the one who was ruling over Judea, and the Romans just got rid of him directly, because Herod was only a puppet king under the Roman rule, and so the Romans got rid of Archelaus, and ruled Judea directly through what they called the procurator, the most famous of those procurators being a man called Pontius Pilate. Uh, That was direct rule from Rome without the Herod dynasty. One of the Philips took no action against Jesus, but he was the grandfather of Salome, who is the girl that's dancing here. Uh, Antipas was in Galilee and Perea, which is the northern parts of Palestine and over the uh, Transjordan areas. The one we're dealing with here is Herod Antipas. He was married to a neighbouring Nabataean princess, but he divorced her in order to marry his niece Herodias, who was at that time already married to Antipas's brother Philip. So she'd already married one uncle, and then she left him to commit adultery and marry another uncle who was already married to somebody else. This was a scandalous affair of the day, bringing shame on the people and the king stealing his sister-in-law, who was also his niece, subsequently brought war against the Nabataeans because of the divorce. John clearly denounced the adulterous wife-swapping marriage. It was against the law of God. Even the Ten Commandments were given Joseph knew were given Joseph knew that a, a, sorry even before the ten commandments were given Joseph if you remember he knew that adultery was wrong the law of the ten commandments made such sexual behavior clearly and unambiguously wrong that is common in our society today doesn't justify it in fact one of the things that people dislike in our society most intensely is the person who breaks up another person's marriage That is something that is still undesirable within our community. And so, this is written up favourably today, adultery, the film stars and the writers, the celebrities. I don't know how you get a job as a celebrity, but there are celebrities. It's a a job prospect these days, and they're very big on doing it. And 
and politicians and community leaders and the fact that it's written up favourably all over the place doesn't make it right. Adultery is clearly against the word and mind of God. Divorce and remarriage doesn't stop adultery being adultery and the air of respectability makes no difference. It's still wrong. Not the unforgivable sin. Perfectly appropriate to repent of it and find forgiveness and to know the mercy of God and have a new start. But that requires saying it's wrong. Prince Charles, he's an an open and public adulterer. He admitted to adultery while his wife was alive and now he's taken another man's wife to be his own. To denounce his actions as unacceptable adultery is the kind of thing John the Baptist did and brings the prophet no honour but in fact in John's day it brought much worse than that, it brought him imprisonment. When Herod heard of the spreading message and the miracles of Jesus, his superstitious guilt took over. His conscience was deeply troubled, troubled by the prophet whom he had executed by his wife's request. He knew that John was innocent. I suspect he knew also that he, Herod, was guilty. And now from the same quarter of the kingdom... The righteous poor, the prophetic movement, were doing all these miracles and preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God and the judgment day and baptizing. And Herod was sure it was John wreaking revenge upon him from the grave. He knew that John was dead. I mean, he'd removed his head. So he concluded that John must have risen from the dead now to bring judgment upon him. Here then is the account of Herod's guilt, both his real objective guilt and the feelings and motivation that come from guilt. His objective guilt starts with his adultery. Herodias was not his wife, never had been, and though married to him, never would be. She's still called in verse 3, you'll notice, Philip's wife. For that is who she was and remained, even though she had left Philip and married Antipas. Just because the courts of our day or even the religious leaders have accepted a divorce doesn't mean adultery is ever right in God's eyes. Friends, we live in a society where our leaders commit adultery freely and our media sees no wrong in what they're doing. In fact, won't even report to us who's sleeping with whom in Parliament partly because there are so many doing it, partly because half of them are journalists doing it. The society that we are in is sick and twisted, broken and ruptured by adultery. People are hurt by it, husbands, wives, children, especially children, but also grandparents and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts are being ripped all apart by adultery and by the plague of accepting it as normality, as acceptable, as approved. There are so many innocent victims of this dreadful plague, innocent victims who will not be helped by our silence against adultery. Now, we who profess the name of Jesus know of the forgiveness of our failings that have been won by the death of Jesus on our behalf. We know of the repentance to which the gospel calls us. We know of the power of God's spirit to live differently. We're called to be different. Not in the sport that we play or the the music we may listen to, but in the manner of life we live 
especially in the matters of basic morality such as theft, murder, adultery. We can't bring healing to others if we pretend that they are not sick. If we pretend that adultery is not wrong, if we pretend that adultery wrongs no other people, we can't bring healing to the guilty if we accept that which God condemns. If we tell them it's okay, everybody does it, it's all right to live in defiance of God's law. We can't bring healing to others without acknowledging that some things are wrong in order that we may declare the death of Jesus for wrongdoing and the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus Christ brings upon us. That through the death of Jesus on our behalf, if we turn in repentance, we find God's mercy washing over us and we're pardoned, we're forgiven, we're changed, we're transformed. We can't bring that transformation, that healing to others by being the same as them or by preaching their gospel. We must be different and we must offer a life that is different. John was preaching just such a repentance when Herod took action. Now Herod's actions are all built upon his adultery. For his adultery moved him into immorality and fundamentally into stupidity because instead of repenting at the voice of the prophet, which he could have done, he persisted in defiance of the voice of the prophet. And when you do not live by the truth, your actions will be compromised and foolish and one wrongdoing compounds itself on another wrongdoing until under the weight of them you yourself are crushed by them. If a man will not keep his promise to his wife, why should you ever expect him to keep his promise to anybody else? I'm always amazed at the naivety and gullibility of our media and our journalists. They are so deep-seatedly cynical about all manner of things except themselves. Adulterers will always lie to the electorate. And that is why it is very important that the electorate is told who the adulterers are amongst the politicians. Because if a man's not going to keep his promise to his wife, why will he keep his promise to the electorate? It actually goes to the very heart of the quality, the character of the man that we are electing into office. But yet the journalist will never tell us that piece of information though it is a fundamentally important piece of information to declare. Herod's adultery led to the abuse of his power, the incarceration of an innocent man, and ultimately his execution. It's dreadful. Powerful people can take actions like this. They can pervert the course of justice. They can silence their critics. They can oppress the innocent. And this still is the case today, for there's nothing new under the sun. Herod, being the self-centred headness that he was, held a banquet and had his so-called wife's daughter dance for his guests. Her dance, we're told in verse 6, pleased Herod. You can't help feel that this was one dirty old man, that he had his wife's daughter dancing in a way that pleased him pleased him enough to publicly offer her 
an oath. Any request that you give up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Not only was he a dirty old man, he was a silly old fool. Showing off to his guests, making the grand gesture of powerful wealth and prestige. Well, that offers leads to the next action, the execution of the prophet. For that is what the girl, prompted by her adulterous mother, <laughs> requested. Think of it. She could have had a house. She could have had a harbour view. She could have had a Mercedes. She could have had anything she wanted. And what did she want? She wanted the prophet's head on a platter. How twisted has a mind become? Throughout the passage then we see not only Herod's actions but also his motivations. The obvious motivation was his lust which led to the adultery and presumably gave him such pleasure in watching a young girl dance. But notice how this adultery led the king into a slavery and imprisonment of fear. Fear of Herodias, fear of John, fear of the crowds, fear of his guests, fear of Jesus and his miracles, fear of the disciples. He's now controlled by fear. He's the king, but he's controlled by fear. So often the tyrants who ruled the world are controlled by fear. Mr. Gaddafi was controlled by fear. Idi Amin was controlled by fear. That's why they gather around them, the bodyguards they have, because they're controlled by fear. That's why they kill their enemies, because they're controlled by fear. The adulterous king was now a prisoner in Herodias's affections. So he had to imprison John, we're told in verse 3, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. She wasn't going to accept the local prophet denouncing her illicit affair. Herod had to defend her honour, such as she had. And for her sake he imprisoned John. How easy it is to speculate on the persistent pressure that Herodias's tongue would have applied to the king about this prophet. Do you think this request was the first time that it ever came? I don't know, we're not told. But in my deep, suspicious mind, I think she will have been nagging away about that prophet time and time again. But the king wouldn't execute John because of his fear. He wanted to execute him, but he was thwarted, we're told, by fear. Look at verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Immoral and powerful rulers nearly always live in fear and nearly always overreact in paranoia. And such fear ran through the Herodian family across all four generations who ruled over parts of Palestine. Immoral and powerful paranoids. Adulterers live in fear. They live a life of fear. Fear of discovery. Fear of disapproval, fear of being hurt and rejected, fear of their partner committing adultery against them. 
Herod feared Herodias and her demands. He feared John and his preaching. He feared the crowds and their belief. And this fear was not far away when Salome asked for the head of John the Baptist. For we read in verse 9, And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded to be given. It's because of his oaths and his guests that he did it. He didn't want to do it because of his political fear. But he didn't want to go back on his word in front of his guests. He made the big man's grand gesture. Now he was afraid of peering the cowardly small man that he actually was. He didn't mind going back on his oath to his first wife when he discarded her for his niece and sister-in-law. But this oath in front of his dinner guests, well, that had to be kept. This was an oath that should never have been made, but once made, should never have been kept, especially as it involved the murder of an innocent man. So, adultery turned to murder. Sadly, it's often the case that adultery springboards even to all manner of dreadful consequences. Even today in our city, the murders that happen so often are murders of passion that have come out of adulterous relationships. The book of Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 6. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonour will he get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Uh, the Proverbs points out that people will forgive a thief who steals a loaf of bread that they may feed. But nobody forgives the adultery that is committed against them. And while people may con control themselves for justice on an issue like theft, on the issue of adultery, passions reign and control is easily lost. I've mentioned before the great atheist Bertrand Russell, who was the apostle of adultery in the 20th century. He was a man who wrote books on morality, on happiness, on marriage, on how to raise children and on education. He was a man praised and applauded by the world, winning the Nobel Prize for Literature, lauded by Richard Dawkins as no fool and as a great philosopher. He was a man whose life was filled with adulterous relationships, apart from being married four times. A man whose children were tortured by his adulteries. A man who saw two women put into psychiatric care as a result of the sexual abuse that he gave to them, promising them marriage and then dumping them. He was a pacifist who jealously led several times, several times attempted to murder in interpersonal family relationships. The only reason he didn't commit murder was his incompetence. In Herod, there was no incompetence. When adultery turned to murder, he did it. John was executed. The head was given to the wicked woman who asked for it and his body dutifully buried by his disciples. 
Friends, today, Herod, this Herod, but all the Herods, but particularly this Herod Antipas, is only known because of his execution of John the Baptist. Kings come, kings go. Professional historians keep a record of them, but their contributions, by and large, don't add up to much. Think back through the prime ministers we've had in Australia, and it's a long list, and the contributions are not all that much different to the captains of the Australian cricket team. Prophets change society. Prophets change the lives of people. And the apostles of Jesus were to be like the prophets of old, preaching a message that would transform society. And remember the apostles' blessing. And the Messiah's warning that Jesus gave to his apostles in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here is the central truth that the apostles had to learn, that every Christian has to learn as well. You can't speak the truth in a sinful world and be popular. You can't call upon the world to repent and be loved. You can't be a true prophet of God and not be persecuted. And you can't take up the cross of Jesus and not suffer for him. Whatever prophet in our land is lauded and and applauded by our present media is by definition a false prophet. The fact that you're persecuted doesn't make you a true prophet, it may mean that you're just a very unpleasant person. But you will not be popular if you speak the truth in our society. However, in learning that truth, you need to remember the other part of it. You're blessed in persecution. Rejoice and be glad, for you're in the best of company, the prophets of God. And your reward is in the best of places, in heaven with the heavenly Father. That's the good news, you see, you need to remember. That when you invite people to come to Cathedral Bible Study, when you mention that you're a Christian, when you talk about church, when people say to you at work, you know, how was the weekend? And you say, oh, it was great, I heard a really interesting sermon on Sunday morning about and they snarl and turn away from you and walk away as if you didn't exist, whereas if you'd said, oh, I went to the rugby league and I watched a few men bash each other's brains out and that was fantastic, that would be acceptable. That's, oh, which one did you see? I mean, that's a good thing to do, whereas going to church is, well, I'd rather you didn't mention it to me. When people turn their back, rejoice. Be glad. You're in the best of all company. That's how they've always treated the people who've spoken the truth of God's word. Rejoice. Because your reward is not here, your reward is in heaven. Do not be put off. Do not self-censor. For that is what so many of us do, don't we? How was your weekend? I went to the football. Yes, you did. Good. And you went to church. But I don't mention that because it will have a negative reaction. And then you wonder why people don't ever hear about Christianity. 
when we Christians aren't even mentioning it. And when you say, I went to church, don't say, I went to church. Say, I heard a really interesting sermon on and tell them about the sermon. I know that is more likely to get a negative reaction, but so what? How will they ever hear the word of God if the word of God is never spoken to them by God's people? Because God's people are self-censoring, because God's people are so fearful of reaction. You will get reaction, it will be negative. And you'll also get conversions. And nothing is more positive. No one's going to get converted if they never hear the gospel. And if you're the only Christian they know, guess who they've got to hear it from? So don't self-censor out of fear. Rejoice and be glad when the answer is negative. Because you're in the best of all companies, the company of that headless man, John the Baptist. It's the belief in eternity that enables us to have the courage of morality. It's only as our eyes are fixed on heaven that we become useful on earth. For we make decisions in the light of eternity that make no sense to those who live for their senses. But stand us in good stead both here and now. As well as there and then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithful witness of John the Baptist. We thank you that he was your man who stood firm for the truth and spoke even to his own hurt, that which needed to be said. We do pray, Father, that you would give to us that courage, that sense of eternity and the importance of people knowing the truth and living by it that will enable us to speak up for the truth in the context of our world. And we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would give us that sense of joy, even in, especially in, whatever rejection we may have. That sense of joy of knowing that we are with you and your son and your prophets in speaking the truth and suffering for it. That sense of joy of knowing that our reward is not here, but in heaven. And we pray for this sense in Jesus' name. Amen.